0: This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You're listening to Session 15, Filled with the Spirit, Part A, from the series Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Bait Sword Fellowship.
1: I guess we'll go ahead and get started. So this is, we're starting Session 15 now. Um, So I have to apologize in the last session I kinda did an outline for the sessions coming up and in that outline I said we'll be doing something different this week and then I decided to change it up so uh, don't pay attention to last week's outline. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. okay so if you recall last session we were looking at the theology of the Holy Spirit uh, talking about who or what is the Holy Spirit um, understanding the person of the Holy Spirit so this uh, with the last session we started into our final section of the series Uh, you know the first section in sessions one to three we went through the background kind of historical stuff sessions four to seven we did a survey through the scriptures uh sessions eight to thirteen we focused on the gifts of the spirit uh now we're just basically tackling a bunch of random topics that don't fit into any of the other sections um and also Hopefully, my goal is that these will get a little more practical as we get into this. I know last time wasn't that practical in talking about theology, uh, you know, who who, or what the person of the Holy Spirit is, how we define that, and um, but, but there is practical application. So these topics don't necessarily follow a logical order. That's why I've kind of changed the order a couple times already as we've been uh, in, in planning this out but so that that brings us up to session 15 where we are right now and we're going to be talking about what it means to be filled with the spirit uh, and this session is going to be more of an introduction and orientation kind of to that um, and c- certain aspects of this are going to be fleshed out more throughout, until we get to the end of the series, next several sessions. So, um, in particular, this session, I'm, we're going to focus on two main subtopics. So the first is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to tackle today. And the next is what the Holy Spirit does when he fills us, the, the roles of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Um, and we'll tackle that next time. So today we'll talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know this is a phrase, this is a, a phrase that's popular in certain circles, uh, probably mostly in Pentecostal and charismatic circles you hear people use that phrase. Uh, but it's a, it's a biblical phrase. We're going to look at some places in the Bible where that phrase is found, and what it means in that context in just a second. Uh, but first of all, when you hear people throw around that, that term, baptism of the Holy Spirit, what, what does that mean? What do, you, what do they typically mean by that in your exposure to it? Any thoughts? second Yeah, usually referring to a second experience. Yeah, uh, after salvation, right? Yeah. Um, often it's used to refer to an experience of speaking in tongues, in like a Pentecostal setting, right? Prophesying, Prophesying. yeah. Yeah. So, so they're talking about like a, an ex, an experience where you have. Um, you know, the this spiritual encounter where you feel like filled filled with the spirit, um, maybe having some sort of evidence of speaking in tongues or, or something else depending on the tradition. But yeah, that's that's generally how the phrase is uh, referred to today. That like the initial filling of this with the spirit, right? So so in other words, if you've recei- if you have Receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it means you're spirit-filled. This is the general idea of how the term is used, right? Uh, if you've not received that baptism, it means you're not spirit-filled. And so the big question then is, how do you know? How do you know if you've had the baptism of the Holy Spirit or not? What is it that identifies it? Um, you know, if you haven't had it, how do you get it? These sorts of questions right so and this is a big thing for a lot of a lot of believers right uh, Some believers are very vexed by this kind of question right what if I don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit the way I should? Uh, some believers live under this nagging sense of worrying that they've not attained to that level of spirituality that they ought to um, Others perhaps explain it away and fail to seek more of God in their lives, and miss out on a more dynamic spiritual life that could be theirs. And then there's many people who testify of a dynamic experience that they have, which they refer to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, how do we unravel all these kind of different opinions that are out there? Well, uh, here's a couple questions that we can ask. First of all, is the is Holy Spirit baptism the same as being filled with the Spirit? It's a legitimate question that we need to ask. And then, what does Holy Spirit baptism or filling look like? What's the evidence? And how can we be baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit? So, and again, this in this session we're going to focus mostly on. Um, the biblical term, you know some of the some of the stuff will be fleshed out more as we go through further sessions. but uh, for today, you know let's start off by looking at some of these passages of scripture. So uh, you should have a list there. The first one is Matthew chapter three verse eleven. Let's take a look at that. So these are places in the Bible where this phrase, baptism, in the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Matthew 3, verse 11. This is in the middle of the sermon that John the Baptist is preaching. And he says to the people, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And it goes on, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, burn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, so Matthew 3, 11, Mark 1, verse 8, Luke 3, 16, John 1, 33, all of these mention baptism of the Holy Spirit in the context of a, a sermon being preached by John. In other words, this is a, this is a prophecy that John gave, John the Baptist about Messiah, right? He's prophesying about Messiah, that he's the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right? Let's look at let's look at the example from the book of John, because it's a little different, but very similar. Um, John 133. Well, let's start in verse 32. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So in other words, this is a revelation that John the Baptist got from God, that there is going to be this guy that's going to come that... His role in his ministry is going to be that of baptizing in the Holy Spirit. Just as, you know, the analogy is that John baptized in water, the Messiah would baptize in the Holy Spirit. Let's look at this example in Acts, chapter one. Verse Let's start in verse four. This is uh, um, Yeshua. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, quote, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that's, that's almost quoting what John the Baptist said, right? John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Um, Acts eleven. Verse 16. Um, Well, let's start in verse 15. So this is, Peter is describing what took place at Cornelius' house. Remember in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and he preaches to them, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. And uh, um, so Peter describes that in here in in acts 11 verse 15 he says as i began to speak the holy spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning and i remembered the word of the lord how he had said john baptized with water but you will be baptized with the holy spirit so again it's it's uh Referencing this prophecy that John the Baptist had given, which Yeshua repeated. So all of these passages so far that are talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's always in, in, in parallel or contrast with John's baptism, right? You've got John baptized with water, Messiah will baptize with the Spirit. So there's, there's that correlation going on. Um, there's two other passages Uh, Well, these are not as explicit in talking about baptism of the Spirit, but they're kind of related. Let's look at them. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. It says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. So it, it doesn't use the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Spirit exactly. And, you know, in this case, it, it might be talking about how when we become believers, we are immersed in Yeshua and into the Spirit, and so, so, yeah, there's a sense in which it's kind of talking about baptism in the Spirit, but, you know, it's a little different than the other passages we looked at, right? Um, and Titus 3, verse 5, this one is also slightly different, but similar. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Yeshua, Messiah, our Savior. So this doesn't use that term baptism or baptize, but it talks about washing, in, in being washed in uh, the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. All right. So those are the passages that kind of bear on what we're talking about here. There's a couple points I want to make based on these verses that we looked at. Uh, First of all, these passages, particularly the ones in the Gospels and the ones in Acts, they're not describing... An experience in the life in the lives of individual believers, so much, right? Did you catch that? It's talking about, you know, you could, you could even say it's talking about an event, a prophesied event, that would take place in human history, right? Most of these passages relate the prophecy of John the Baptist, right? So you know the the Bible doesn't talk about this, it doesn't talk about this baptism in the Holy Spirit as some sort of rite of passage that each of us goes through individually and independently, right? Um, That's not the focus of these passages. The focus is on this big outpouring that would take place, right? And remember in session five... Um, we talked about how Messiah is both the ultimate Spirit-filled individual as well as the Spirit-bearer. So he's the one that comes, and he's filled with the Spirit, but he's also the one that comes and pours out the Spirit on God's people. Right? Remember the prophecies that we have in the Tanakh. There's prophecies about the Holy Spirit will be poured out on God's people. There's also prophecies about the Spirit of God will rest upon him the servant of the lord this end time redeemer that would come so so messiah is the one who brings the spirit he's filled with the spirit but he pours out the spirit on god's people and so that's what john is prophesying here john is saying that this this guy is going to come this this guy after me is going to come who will bring the holy spirit and pour it out on people you know just like i'm baptizing with water he's going to baptize you guys and the Holy Spirit right that's the idea Um, and so this is one of messiah's roles this is a role of messiah is to bring the Holy Spirit another thing is this word I mean we're using this word baptism or baptize It's the Greek word baptizo right It, it really just means to immerse we read a lot about immersion in the Torah, right? It's a Torah concept. Immersion is a big thing in Judaism. Um, and we've already talked about that, so I'm not going to repeat all that. But um, the way it's used here is obviously a metaphor, right? It's, it's using, uh, it's, it's a metaphor. Remember how we talked about the Bible often uses the metaphor of pouring out, when it's talking about God's spirit, right? It talks about God pouring out his spirit as though it were water, right? Uh, and, and, and filling a person as though a person were like a, a vessel, a, a pitcher, a jar, or a glass, right? So, so it's the imagery of, you know, God takes this pitcher full of water and he fills this glass up. He pours out the water and fills this glass. That's the imagery being used of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is poured out and fills people, right? And and so it's this it's a very similar kind of imagery being used here. You immerse in water. And so it's talking about you being immersed in the Holy Spirit. So this the, the spirit is being likened to water and water immersion, baptism is a metaphor for what Messiah will do to his followers. Then the passages in Acts clearly show that this, what this metaphor is talking about. It's talking about the Holy Spirit filling the disciples, right? So, filling, falling upon, clothing, being immersed in. Like, these are, these are all different ways of describing the same thing. God's Spirit coming upon his people. The Bible uses all these different kinds of terms, right? But they all essentially mean the same thing. It's not like, well, this guy, it says he was clothed with the spirit, but he wasn't filled with the spirit. That's different, right? No, that's not. It's the same thing, right? It's it's using different language to express the same sort of thing. Um, And specifically, in the context of the book of Acts and these passages we looked at, Baptism in the Holy Spirit refers to the event that took place in Acts chapter two, chapter eight, and chapter ten—the threefold, the three-part outpouring of the Holy Spirit that took place in the Book of Acts, which we've already talked about. So it's describing a corporate event in the history of the Kehillah of the assembly of God's people, rather than an experience that every believer must go through individually. Do you catch? the difference there does that make sense so so it's talking about a historical event right at the same time though uh like we saw in first corinthians and in titus um these verses imply that this that historical event that took place is something that all believers participate in on a personal basis in some way right that through faith in messiah Through immersion in his name and in his spirit, we partake in this one immersion, right? Paul says there is one faith, one immersion, one Lord, one spirit, right? That sort of thing. We all partake together in that. And so even though we live thousands of years after what took place in Acts, we're connected. (laughs) God brings us into his family and we become part of that people, part of that family, right? It's amazing, amazing. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about how all that works later. So, anyway, these are these are just some thoughts based on these passages that we've looked at um, that describe the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I want to shift gears now and look at how has the baptism in the Holy Spirit been understood historically, right? Um, through through church history, most uh, well, I shouldn't say most, but many have understood the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be referring to the historical event that took place in Acts chapter two, right? It's a, it's a, it was a three-stage event took place in the book of Acts. And that's what it's talking about, right? Um, at a certain point in church history, we see this phrase "baptism in the Holy Spirit" personalized to refer to an experience that individual believers um go through uh so let's look at that here's uh in your notes here there's a kind of a a summary list of historical perspectives on the baptism in the spirit and this list is taken from uh an article by sam storms um some of the categories perhaps are a little more overlapping or ambiguous but th- than the way these are portrayed here, but this gives us a good idea of kind of the trajectory that's going on. So the first viewpoint is the Roman Catholic viewpoint. In the Roman Catholic Church, baptism in the Spirit is synonymous with infant baptism. So it's a spiritual truth, at times, experienced, uh, evidenced experientially, that accompanies the physical sacrament. So, in other words, baptism in the Spirit is—it's just talking about baptism. It's a sacrament that you get when you're a baby and you get baptized in the church. That's—that's that's all it's talking about, right? And some people actually have a more vivid experience that accompanies it. But so, aside from Roman Catholicism, there are similar views in some Lutheran and Presbyterian groups. Which also practice infant baptism. So that's one viewpoint. Uh, number two, we get the classical Protestant view that the Holy Spirit baptism is contemporaneous with conversion or regeneration. We could call this the one-stage view. Right. So uh, there, and there are two variations of this. The first variation is that bap- this baptism. Um, is non-experiential and unperceived it's a spiritual truth that you must accept via faith in other words what they're saying is that when you become a believer when you get saved you get baptized in the holy spirit whether you know it or not Uh, i I mean most of the time you don't know it but but it happens it's a spiritual truth that happens just accept it don't don't try to feel it or anything it's just there by default uh, the second variation on it is that this baptism is a dynamic felt experience equivalent to the salvation experience. So, so they'll say, well, when you have your salvation experience, that salvation experience is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's something that you feel. It's, it's actually, you know, it's a real experience, um, but it happens at the same time as salvation so, um, advocates for the first variation uh, include people like John Stott and Richard Gaffin. Uh, advocates of the second position uh, include people like George Whitfield. Um, more recently James Dunn, people like that. So, here's a quote from George Whitfield's journal. He says, after having undergone innumerable buffetings of Satan and many months' inexpressible trials, by night and day, under the spirit of bondage, God was pleased at length to remove the heavy load, to enable me to lay hold on his dear Son by a living faith, and by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal me, as I humbly hope, even to the day of everlasting redemption. But oh, with what joy! Joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big joy, with glory, was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off, and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God, and a full assurance of faith broke in upon my disconsolate soul. Surely it was the day of my espousals, a day to be had in everlasting remembrance. At first, my joys were like a spring tide, and as it were, overflowed the banks. Go where I would, I could not avoid singing of psalms aloud. So he's describing his experience, his salvation experience here, um, which for him is synonymous with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the third perspective is the Reformed sealers. <laughs> so if people like Richard Sibbs, Thomas Goodwin, John Owen, and um, possibly Martin Lloyd-Jones would be in this category as well. Uh, but basically, there, there is a subsequent sealing of the Holy Spirit after conversion. It's an experience of direct, felt assurance of salvation, uh, not accompanied by gifts. So what they're saying is, you have your salvation experience, but after that salvation experience, you have a, another experience at which you get an assurance of salvation which is the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the idea behind that. Okay, the fourth view is the Wesleyan view, John Wesley, right? Sanctification, and, or spirit baptism, is a second work of grace subsequent to conversion. It results in the defeat of the power of sin in one's life. Sanctification is an instantaneous experience rather than a gradual process. We talked a bit about this when we were talking about history and Christianity. Um, Right, so this is where we get the doctrine of subsequence. Baptism in the Spirit is a work subsequent to salvation. So John Wesley, John Fletcher, William Booth, Oswald Chambers, Church of the Nazarene, you know, these kinds of these kinds of people would be associated with that. Uh, Here's a quote where Uh, J.I. Packer describes John Wesley's uh, perspective here. He says, John Wesley affirmed a second transforming work of grace, distinct from and ordinarily subsequent to the new birth or conversion. By this second work, so Wesley claimed, God roots all sinful, sinful motivation out of a Christian's heart so that the whole of his mental and emotional energy is henceforth channeled into love for God and others, love that is Christ-like and supernatural, strong and steady, purposeful and passionate, and free from any contrary or competing affection whatsoever. So this is... Um, You know, it's it's from this stream of thought that you have, you know, entire sanctification or Christian perfectionism kind of theologies where they say it's possible to reach a state of sinlessness as a believer. That when you have this baptism of the Holy Spirit, you get to this state where you no longer sin. Um, We've already talked a little bit about that, and probably will more before the end of the series. But basically. It's, I don't think that holds up to real life experience. You know, anyone who claims to be without sin, what, is, what does it say in First John? They're a liar and the truth is not in them. Now, those who hold to Christian perfectionism have a different way of understanding that verse. But, but still, as long as we're in these mortal bodies, I believe we will struggle with our flesh right? Anyway, we'll talk more about that another time. But that's, that's kind of the idea with the Wesleyan view, is that spirit baptism happens as a subsequent work of God's grace that roots sin out of your life. And so you need to get that experience. You could be saved, but if you don't have that experience yet, you're, you're not living at the higher plane of spirituality that you should be. Perspective number five, the Keswick view. And this is very similar to the one we just talked about. There's a lot of overlap here. Uh, Except that this second work of grace was seen as an endowment with power rather than a purification from sin. This is a crisis experience that leads to the higher life or the crucified life. Our role in sanctification is passive. So people like Hannah Whittle-Smith, F.B. Meyer, Andrew Murray, R.A. Torrey, A.J. Gordon, A.B. Simpson, uh, they would fall into the Keswick uh, model of spirituality. Um, Then number six is classic Pentecostalism. In, in classic Pentecostalism, baptism of the Holy Spirit is subsequent to salvation and is the fruit of much seeking and waiting on God. It's evidenced by speaking in tongues. So, assemblies of God, which is like your a classic Pentecostal denomination uh, that would hold to this, right? Um, so, in other words, you become a believer, you're, you're, you're saved, you've accepted Yeshua into your heart, but you haven't received God's spirit yet. You haven't had the baptism of the Holy Spirit yet. You haven't spoken in tongues and you're missing out, right? And you need to get that. You need to, and it, and it's not something that'll just come on its own. It's something that you have to strive for and seek God hard and wait on God. And, and it's it sometimes takes a long time of striving and waiting and, and working up towards this uh, and then you can finally have this experience and it's evidenced by speaking in tongues. If you haven't spoken in tongues you, it was some it wasn't it was wasn't the baptism of the holy spirit unless you actually spoke in tongues. That's the classic pentecostal view. Now not all pentecostals today still affirm that exactly. Some have uh, kind of morphed into number seven or number eight, but, but the classic Pentecostal view is that. You have to speak in tongues. So number seven is the charismatic view, which is similar to number six, except that tongues is not always the necessary evidence. Now, many in the charismatic movement continued the classic Pentecostal view, but not all, right? Even though tongues was still very important, it was not always considered the essential pa- proof of Holy Spirit baptism in the charismatic movement. And then we get to number eight, the neo-charismatic movement, or third wave, right? Um, The neo-charismatic movement actually mostly rejects the theology of subsequence. In other words, they believe that the Holy Spirit baptism occurs at the time of initial salvation, your initial conversion, regeneration. That's when Holy Spirit baptism takes place. Um but there are multiple subsequent experiences with the Holy Spirit or fillings of the Holy Spirit available to believers. Right? So, so, in other words, you can the moment you put your faith in Messiah, you get the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and um, you got it. But that doesn't mean you're filled with the Spirit. You can still Um, have these further experiences with God's spirit that would be more uh, better better characterized as fillings rather than baptism that's kind of the idea and so people like John John Wimber uh, Vineyard Church would be uh, an example of this so here's a quote from John Wimber he says how do we experience spirit baptism it comes at conversion Uh, conversion and holy spirit baptism are simultaneous experiences the born-again experience is the consummate charismatic experience so that that's john wimber's uh, position here so out of those eight perspectives which one makes the most sense now to be honest I personally feel like number eight is the closest to what I believe, believe it or not. You know, I think, I actually think uh, neo-charismatics are are uh, fairly on on target here. Um, I, I would maybe differ a little bit with some of the nuance of that and, and maybe disagree in other ways with neo-charismatic movement, but I think that Scripture is clear that the moment we place our faith in Messiah, we receive his Spirit. We're going to look at that. That's what we'll look at next. So, subsequence. We've talked about this before, this idea of uh, the, the doctrine of subsequence. Does the filling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit happen automatically when you put your faith in Yeshua? Or is it an experience that is subsequent to the salvation experience is there one blessing or two some people even suggested three blessings the the fire fire baptized church (laughs) Um, you know there like with almost anything there's two ways you could go about arguing this on the one hand um, we can go and look at what the scriptures say which is we need to do that obviously Another way of trying to go about arguing this would be to appeal to experience, the experience of believers, right? Well, what, well, what happens in your average believer's life? Let's look at that. And now, the problem with that is, like we said at the outset of this series, experience is not the ultimate test of truth. God's word is the ultimate test of truth, right? You know, just because someone says they saw Elvis at the grocery store the other day doesn't mean it's true, right? People can have any kind of experience, whatever, you know, whether they make it up or whether it actually happens. That's not what we use to determine what is true and what is false, right? As believers, the litmus test is always scripture. But at the same time, experience is not a bad thing. We don't have to be afraid of it and think, you know, see it as a threat or something like that, right? And our testimonies are a powerful tool that God has given each one of us. God gives each, you know, he works in each of our lives and we each have, the, you know, a testimony that we can share about what God has done and the good things that God has done in our lives. So I guess, you know, the point is we have to be careful not to put God into a box and say that when he does something, it always has to look a certain way, right? Like, well, when it happened to me, it happened this way, therefore it has to happen that way to everyone else. You know, like, yeah. I have to be careful not to try to do things like that. So, just in looking at Scripture, let's look at a couple passages that pertain to this. Romans 8, verse 9. so Paul says you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you anyone who does not have the spirit of Messiah does not belong to him but if Messiah is in you although the body is dead because of sin the spirit is life because of righteousness if the spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you he who raised Messiah Yeshua from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you So, did you catch that? If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Him. Right? In other words, if we belong to Him, if we belong to Messiah, then we have His Spirit. The two go together. You can't belong to Him and not have His Spirit. You can't have His Spirit and not belong to Him, right? Let's look at another one. 1 Corinthians 12... Verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one, speaking in the Spirit of God, ever says Yeshua is accursed, and no one can say Yeshua is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Right? We talked about this already in when we were talking about 1 Corinthians 12. Right? What is, you know, in, in the natural mind, you, you hear about this rabbi from Nazareth who was crucified. He died, right? The natural explanation is to say, well, people don't just rise from the dead. He must be still dead. He hung on a tree. He's cursed. That's the, the natural conclusion to come to without God's Spirit. But with God's Spirit, we recognize that he, he is not dead. He rose from the dead. He's alive, and therefore, if he is alive, he is Lord. Those are the only two options, right? Either he's still dead, or he's Lord. He's Messiah. He's the the Savior. And it takes the Spirit of God to make the difference, right? It's God's Spirit that makes the difference. So we can't acknowledge Yeshua for who he truly is without God's Spirit. How about uh, Galatians chapter 3? In Galatians 3 verse 26, it says, For in Messiah Yeshua you are all sons of God through faith. Right? So in other words, if we've put our faith in Messiah, through him we are sons of God. And then what does it say down in chapter 4 verse 6? It says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So if we're, if we're a son, if, we've, if we're a son, that means we have his spirit, right? The two go together. And then we already looked at uh, 1 Corinthians twelve, thirteen, and Titus 3, 5. I just want to look quickly at Titus 3, verse 5 again in this context. It says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Yeshua Messiah, our Savior. So, you can't even be saved without the Holy Spirit. Like, the way we get saved is the Holy Spirit comes and washes us and renews us and regenerates us, makes us into new creatures, right? That's what salvation is all about. Okay, so, so all these passages, in my opinion, very clearly show us that if, if we are in Messiah, if we have placed our faith in him, if we believe that he is Lord that he is risen from the dead, if we are saved, then we have his spirit dwelling in us. Right? We don't need to, we don't need to fear that, well, I have have Jesus in my heart, but I don't think I have his spirit in my heart. It doesn't, the way that he comes into our heart is through his spirit. Yeshua dwells in our hearts through his spirit that dwells in us, right? So, Um, now, those who do preach, uh, and advocate for subsequence, saying that, well, no, the Holy Spirit comes after salvation, um, one passage that they'll appeal to is Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, and I'm not going to read through this, because we've already gone through this in a previous session, but, um, this is where Paul meets the believers in Ephesus, well, he, he finds, it says he found some disciples, right? And he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they say, well, no, we didn't even hear there was a Holy Spirit. <laughs> and so, you know, and then he asks them, well, whose baptism do you receive? And they said, well, John's baptism, and then he teaches them about Yeshua, and they get baptized in the name of Yeshua, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. And so some people will say, well, this is proof that you can be a believer in, um, and then the Holy Spirit comes later, right? Paul was the Pentecostal preacher who was coming and asking them, have you received the Spirit yet? And they said no, so he taught them about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, how you need to have this experience after salvation, and then it happened. Well, if you look closely at the passage, that's not exactly what's going on. And look at the context in the end of chapter 18 as well. These were disciples of John the Baptist. They hadn't heard... The true gospel of Yeshua the risen Messiah yet so Paul comes and explains to them about Yeshua and they receive him they weren't followers of Yeshua yet they hadn't heard the full gospel so anyway the point I want to stress here is that in the theology of Paul and the other apostles there is a common experience with the Holy Spirit that clearly defines the Kehilah, the body of Messiah the assembly of God's people to be in Messiah is to partake of his spirit. Accepting Yeshua into your heart and accepting his spirit into your heart are one and the same thing. So, now, having said all that, <laughs> the danger in saying all that is for people if if people decide, well, since I have God's spirit by default as a believer, I'll just live it up. I don't need to I don't need to really be seeking God. I've already got his spirit in my heart. I don't need to seek more of him. I don't need to I mean that's that's not the right attitude to have, right? We should constantly be yearning for more of him in our lives, more of his presence in us, right? We need to have a greater hunger for him and and be seeking after more of him. And and also, this does, none of this prevents God's spirit from moving whenever he wants and however he wants. Yeshua said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it pleases. Right? And I think there might be a subtle allusion to God's spirit there because the word wind and the word spirit, you know, in Hebrew, ruach, is the same, right? God's spirit is sovereign. He, he is able to move how he wants, when he wants, right? We, he doesn't, you know, we can't whisk him up at our command like a genie or something like that. So, you know, some people have a, a powerful spiritual experience subsequent to their salvation experience. God can do that, right? You know, sometimes when, the, when people first accept Yeshua into their heart, it may be down the road where they have an even deeper experience of submitting their lives completely to him as Lord, right? But I don't think that we should try and make, galvanize a theology based on people's experiences like that, right? You know, I don't think that any two people have the exact same experience. And that's, that's part of how amazing God is, Right? <laughs> that he he's able to, he made each of us different and he works in each of us in different ways. So but the point is that we can't be in Messiah without his spirit, right? It's his spirit that draws us to Messiah and it's his spirit that conforms us to the image of Messiah. True faith is a work of God's spirit. But that initial faith is only the beginning of the journey right we're supposed to grow in our walk of faith we're supposed to become more and more submitted to the lordship of Messiah Yeshua another thing is that in the scripture i think it's it's clear that being filled with the spirit is not just a one time thing for believers right and you know, I mean, take the word baptism, right? When we talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit or immersion in the Holy Spirit. In, from a Christian perspective, baptism is a one-time thing that happens in your life, right? In Judaism, a mikvah, immersion, happens repeatedly, right? It's not just a one-time thing. Now, you know, there is your initial immersion when you become a believer, but it's, there are immersions for other reasons as well, and we read about that in the Torah, so I guess, I guess the point is that I don't think we should be looking at it as just a one-time thing in the life of a believer. And we see examples, for example, in, in the Tanakh, Samson, uh, he's filled with the Spirit in Judges 13.25, then he's filled with the Spirit again in 14.6, and then again in verse 19, and then again in ver- uh, chapter 15, verse 14. It's like, it happens again and again. Every time there's a need, God empowers him, fills him with his spirit, and boom, off he goes, right? Saul, it happened to Saul, right? In chapter 10, verse 10, Saul's filled with the spirit. He has this encounter with the prophets from Gibeah. And right in the very next chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 6, says he was filled with the spirit, and he rallied the troops, and they went off to war. And so, you know, it wasn't just a one-time thing for Saul. Look at, uh, in the book of Acts, we see repeated fillings acts chapter 2 the disciples are all filled with the spirit but acts chapter 4 verse 31 says they were filled with the spirit again you might ask well weren't they just filled back in chapter 2 but i guess you can get filled again right paul was uh, well stephen was filled with the spirit in acts 6 verse 10 and then it says again in 755 he was filled with the spirit paul was filled initially in acts 9 17 and then again in chapter 13 verse 9 so, you know, the point is that we shouldn't look at it as just a one-time thing. That's the point I suggest. We need to be continually filled with God's Spirit. I've heard someone put it this way, that we, as humans, are leaky vessels. You know, God fills us with his Spirit, but we keep leaking. And we need to be filled again. And look at... Uh, what we, uh, we read in our Haftorah for, um, for Hanukkah from Zechariah, where it's talking about the, the two olive trees and the, the lamps and the, the, the channels of oil that flow into the lamp. And some people have suggested that this, this is a good analogy for our spiritual lives, is we need that constant flow of oil we need god's spirit constantly flowing in right we need more of him and more of him we can't just say well you know i had my experience i'm good to go i don't need any more thank you cuz we <laughs> we keep running out of oil right we keep we keep leaking so I think this also demonstrates that our, our spiritual experiences are not all identical from person to person, like we're saying, right? Again, we can't put God in a box. And too many theologies of the Holy Spirit's workings arise from an individual leader's personal experience. For some reason, people feel the need to canonize their spiritual experience as theology. And, you know, then you get all these other people following them saying i want the same experience you know and trying to have the same experience as this one person have and you get an entire movement or denomination built off of that one person's experience (laughs) right but god doesn't you know god doesn't always work that way god doesn't we can't say that god is constrained to work in exactly this way every single time like a cookie cutter pattern So, the Holy Spirit can manifest himself to us in different ways at different times in our lives. But at the same time, Scripture is clear that no one can truly come to terms with who Yeshua is and acknowledge him as Lord without the Spirit. The Spirit is active in our salvation. Rebirth takes place place through the Spirit. Salvation starts a lifelong journey of being sanctified and conformed to the likeness of Yeshua through the Spirit. So, I believe very strongly that sanctification, which is becoming more like Yeshua, is not an instantaneous event. It's a lifelong process. And this is something we're going to unpack in future sessions. But I want to caution us against the attitude that I can somehow have this one-time experience that will fix all my spiritual ills. If I can only get this, you know, attain to this experience you know, then I'll, I won't have to worry about sin anymore. I won't have to worry about anything. I'll be good to go. You know, have a um, all my ducks in a row. We could call that shortcut spirituality, right? Or fast food spirituality. Too many people seek an instantaneous experience rather than allowing God to change them and grow them over a long period of time. Right? And I think... More often, God can work through experiences, and he often does. But I think more often, God works through long-term processes in our lives, right? Remember the story of Saul. Saul had these, um, these spiritual encounters. He had these amazing encounters with God's Spirit but it didn't guarantee his spiritual well-being later, later on, right? The moment he started toying with disobedience and rebellion, he lost the spirit, right? Past experiences are no proof of the spirit's presence in my life today. I think that's the moral of the story here. So, let's... Conclude our discussion on baptism in the spirit um, just to recap some of what we've already said baptism in the spirit is simply another way of saying filled with the spirit it's a metaphor right it's it's synonymous with being filled with the spirit there was a historical event in the book of Acts in which the Kehila received the spirit right in this three stage outpouring that we've looked at All of us as believers participate in that event through faith in Messiah. We become part of God's people, part of the Kehillah, and we become partakers of his spirit through that. The spirit filling us is not just a one-time event, but part of a lifelong journey. And so next time we're going to continue this session by looking at what the spirit does in our lives we're going to look at some of the roles of the Holy Spirit and how that how that all uh, plays out Uh, but let's close with a word of prayer our Father in heaven thank you so much Um, thank you for your spirit thank you for your word thank you that you have redeemed us and called us out to be uh, a pure and spotless bride to be your glorious kehilla. Father, I ask that you would sanctify us, that you would wash us, and that you would empower us through your spirit to do your work in this world. And thank you in Yeshua's name, amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.